We continue our series through God's law as it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. But before we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 to 22, which is our sermon text today, Deuteronomy 3, 12 to 22, will you first turn to the historical book of Numbers, chapter 32. Numbers 32. I'll read verses 1 through 27, which give us something of the history of this time period immediately preceding Deuteronomy and Moses preaching to the people on the plains of Moab. We are in the season of the victory of Israel over Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Numbers 32. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Ataroth, Debon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebum, Nebo, and Beon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, And he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. Then they came near to him and said, We will build here sheepfolds 
for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place, while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance, for we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build for yourselves cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep, and do what you have promised. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do just as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, while your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. And Moses in Deuteronomy 3 is reflecting on this fairly recent event in Deuteronomy 3, beginning at verse 12. So we took possession of this land at that time from Aroer, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argo. Concerning all Bashan, it is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argo as far as the border of the Geshurites or Meachathites, and called it, that is, Bashan, after his own name, Havoth Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir, I gave Gilead. To the Reubenites and to the Gadites I gave from Gilead even as far as the valley of Arnon. The middle of the valley is a border, and as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as a border, from Chinereth even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. But your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you. 
And they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan, that you may return every man to his possession which I have given you. I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them. For the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. The Apostle John invites us in the third chapter of his first epistle. He invites us to see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. Such we are. Brought near. Brought actually into the Father's house by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That is a privilege that relatively few in history, perhaps, can ever know. Because although certainly all the world is his creation, all the world is filled with people, each one of whom is the work of his hands, not each one of us is privileged to experience the special work of his great heart, the work of adoption. The world is not filled with his children and heirs. And the relatively few that there are live in our Father's house and home by the initiative of his saving grace alone. He brought us in. If we are in, he brought us. The 68th Psalm, which we've been singing, reminds us a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation, that is, in his house. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads the prisoners out into prosperity. Only the rebellious live in a parched land. So God sovereignly discriminates among persons and among peoples. And this divine discrimination among peoples appears again and again and again throughout this book of Deuteronomy. We see it again today. And the point I'm making here is that humanity isn't some vast, uniformly bland, undifferentiated bowl of plain oatmeal. Humanity is diverse. It is purposely diverse. Providentially, God has, in his wisdom, divided us segmented us into smaller groups, and purposely so. The special distinctiveness of families and tribes, therefore, matters. It does matter. Diversity matters. And when it's the work of God, diversity is a beautiful thing. Well, there is no 
family more distinctively set apart from all other families than the family of God. From the fuller perspective of the New Testament, we know that he's collected us, he's collected his family from among all the nations. We who were once separated from him, separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without God and without hope in the world. We were just like everyone else. And he's plucked us out and he's brought us together under one roof and one righteousness and one name, the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he's made us by the exercise of faith in our hearts one family, the children of God. Now, of course, exploring this whole matter of what it means to be God's own family isn't the work of a single sermon or the work of a single series of sermons. To understand that and explore that is really the work of a lifetime. Discovering and applying one's own sonship to God is the whole Christian life and experience. So time and the text before us today constrain me to focus on the particular family matter of our inheritance and the brotherly duty that accompanies being heirs of God in Christ. With privilege comes responsibility. You may remember from earlier studies that Moses preaches these first four chapters of Deuteronomy on topics and events that Israel especially needs to be reminded of as they are preparing to cross over the Jordan into the land of promise. At a critical time like this, not everything is equally important. Not everything is equally urgent for the people to hear. This matter of dividing their inheritance and defining the borders was, at this point of time, becoming fairly urgent. It has to be done right. It has to be done in a timely way. The land of promise and the people who live there have to fit one another's needs. I wonder if you've ever thought of that, that the character of the land and the character of the people who live on the land ought to fit one another. So the situation is this. Two of the twelve tribes, Reuben and Gad, these two tribes had for the last 40 years been especially blessed in the propagating of their livestock along the way, wherever they wandered. And remember, this is 600,000 fighting men plus their families, so a couple of million people going through the desert, wherever they wandered, for however long they stayed, the great concern of Reuben and Gad, in particular, was always, where are we going to feed and water these prodigiously multiplying flocks and herds of ours? In a desert, of course, the answer is not always apparent. The answer to that question isn't always apparent. Where are we going to find water? Where are we going to find feed? 
Well, now, all of a sudden, some amazing things are beginning to unfold before this new generation. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, falls in battle. And Israel inherits all the land of his broken kingdom. And it is hundreds of square miles. Og, king of Bashan, falls. And Israel inherits all of his land. Hundreds and hundreds of square miles more. These are amazing events, but they're not random chance occurrences. In actual fact, this gathering momentum is the unfolding of covenant promises that God made first, centuries earlier, to Abraham. Promises that he repeats again and again to Abraham, at least from Genesis 12 through Genesis 17. Let's look together at the last and fullest expression of these promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. The Lord tells Abraham there that I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Wonderful covenant promises that had rested simmering on the back burner of history for hundreds of years in Egypt. In Egypt. This covenant is Israel's one great hope. It's her only hope, but it's her hope only. Because during all those years of her enslavement in Egypt, those promises weren't seen. They hadn't come to fruition. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each one of them in turn dies without seeing the promises fulfilled in their lifetimes. You remember back in Canaan, Abraham's actual real estate holdings amounted to a field with a cave that was suitable for burying for Sarah and then himself. That is all Abraham owned in the land of Canaan when he died. Now it's the privilege of this new generation gathered on the plains of Moab to see the awakening as from a long slumber, the awakening of the covenant purposes of God. He is starting again to move. And things are happening, and things are starting to happen very quickly for Israel. We need to consider today, first of all, the privilege of being included among those Abrahamic descendants, heirs by faith of the covenant. First, the privilege, and then the duty under which that privilege places us the duty of mutual brotherly support in the whole church 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Privilege and duty. As Paul would later write, summing up this same lesson, as he writes to the Philippians, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Those are the duties of brotherhood in Christ. Now two Amorite kings have just fallen in quick succession, clearing all of these hundreds of square miles of lush green pasture lands east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, and northward as far as the Sea of Chenareth, or what we know better as the Sea of Galilee. All of this land is cleared out, and suddenly it's a new situation. But before I continue with this history, let me pause here from this history and geography to ask a relevant question. I think it's a relevant question. Are we, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this year of the Lord, 2023, are we a generation that is ready, should God so provide, that's ready for the rapid unfolding of his covenant promises? Should he be pleased suddenly to ripen his promises and bring them to pass? We in the Reformed churches may be theologically deep, but I'm sometimes wondering whether we are as nimble as we ought to be. As nimble, as ready to adjust to changing situations. Are we ready to move? Are we ready to act? Are we ready to seize the opportunities of perhaps another great awakening? Should God be pleased to bring it to pass? I'm afraid that many Reformed churches are heavier institutions than perhaps we need to be. And to follow, for the Reformed churches, to follow providential opportunities is like turning a great ship. It's not terribly responsive. It's not done quickly. When the Lord opens up new opportunities for us, whenever that may be, let the church not be found sitting on our hands. Let's not be found without oil for our lamps. When opportunity dictates, let's be ready to pounce on it. And let's not be surprised, dear friends, when all of a sudden the gospel begins to prosper among us to bear visible fruit, and Christ accelerates the building of his church. That shouldn't surprise us. We don't see it every day. Not every generation sees it. But when we do see it, it shouldn't surprise us because the Lord has promised to build his church. He will build his church. Ours is to be ready. Ours is to be faithful. 
Psalm 110, a willing people in thy day of power will come to thee. On that day, when the nations finally discover, when the nations finally discover the crumbling ineffectiveness of their own intellectual fortresses, let's be ready to move out smartly and in good order. Years of latency, years of reluctance now behind the children of Israel. These two kings have just collapsed before them. And those victories are but the earnest and guarantee of more to come, more to come across the river once they do cross. More to come when God's people show strength and courage and obedience to the voice of the Lord their God. The road leads west from here. Westward across the Jordan, westward into the promised land, first to Jericho, and then to campaigns south and campaigns north. The objective of these campaigns, the objective is the eradication of the corrupt peoples of Canaan for the glory of God and inheriting the land forfeited by the overflow of national sin. They're going to lose it, and God is giving it to us. The good hand of God upon them, Israel at this point of time, has at last achieved some strategic momentum. She's achieved the strategic initiative, and the nations are beginning to melt away before her. But it's just at this point that a very practical matter occurs to the chiefs of these two tribes, the tribe of Reuben and that of Gad. And it has to do with a particular blessing measured out to them as tribes of shepherds and ranchers. Here are these huge and rapidly growing flocks and herds under shepherds who apparently had inherited the skills, the shepherding skills of their father Jacob. They're great shepherds. Their stock is prolific. And here now dangled before their eyes are these hundreds upon hundreds of square miles of land that God made for the raising of domesticated animals. It seems such an obvious fit, the people for the land. The land for the people. The problem is, this land's over here. On the east side of the Jordan, it's not over there to the west where we're going. That's the problem. Now, a couple of things here are worth your notice. I think the first has to do with Moses, the preacher, and the second larger issue with the nature of the covenant. First of all, while Moses, the historian, lays out in Numbers chapter two, uh, 32 this whole two-and-a-half tribe incident in great detail, in Numbers 32, he describes this falling out with the two tribes 
and all of the emotional rough edges of that. That's Moses the historian. Here in Deuteronomy 3, Moses the preacher recounting the very same incident here in Deuteronomy. Moses the preacher passes over all of that controversy, emphasizing instead the final twofold product. First of all, that Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled their wives and families and flocks here in the grassy hills east of the Jordan. That becomes their inheritance. But second, and this is the point, that the men of these tribes fulfill their brotherly duty to the whole nation of Israel. There would be no falling out of the march. There'd be no parochialism among the people of God. There'd be no seizing the blessing without shouldering the common burden. There'd be no privilege without duty. Verses 18 through 20. Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. But your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession which I have given you. Numbers 32 is Moses the historian. Deuteronomy 3 is Moses the preacher. And these little historical nuances to be found in God's word shouldn't be missed. It shouldn't be missed that passing over that earlier flare-up and all the great heat that was generated against Reuben and Gad, the dropouts, the separatists, passing over all of that, Moses now, the humble preacher on the plains of Moab, instead speaks to the heart of the people. He's addressing their hearts. You see, there's a time to break down. There's also a time to build up. There's a time to admonish and there's a time to restore, to amend. And preachers ought, like Moses, to have some sense of the times and the peoples to whom we are preaching. But the second and much more important thing we should notice is how God has tied the covenant to the land. And obviously I need to be careful here, but the point I'm making is that Christianity is not the pie-in-the-sky by-and-by that so many people imagine Christianity to be. Responsibility, I think, for the evaporation of Christian influence from the earth today has to be laid in large measure at the church's own feet. As we neglect, as we spiritualize away the promises of God. It's as if when Christ said, the meek shall inherit the earth, he meant something other than the plain meaning of the words. To draw visitors 
The words on the marquee of a church I once visited years ago, the the marquee said, free trip to heaven, details inside. But even then, even back then, I had to scratch my head and wonder, is that really the message that the church wants to convey to the world? That the gospel offers us a free trip to heaven? Does that message mesh with the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it? Does that free trip to heaven message mesh even with the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Are you here today to win a free trip to heaven? I hope you're here today, at least in large part, because you want to be equipped to serve the living God now. To exercise a godly dominion and bring all things in submission to our Lord Jesus Christ now. Not ruling as the Gentiles rule as lords, but as Christ himself commissioned us to rule as servants. The sweet by and by Friends, don't misunderstand me. The sweet by and by is not to be laid aside. That's waiting for us in God's good time. It is. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I yearn to hear the Lord Jesus speak those words to me. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But to everything there's a season. And while it's still day, we work for Christ. We work this earth that we've inherited. We have a great work before us to do together. My point is just this. That in working the earth, in preaching, in testifying to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we as a church are under obligation to one another. No Christian individual or family or congregation or presbytery or denomination can say to any other, I have no need of you. Admittedly, we swim against a cultural current of atomistic individualism that infects the thinking even of many in the church. We think just in terms of how this is going to profit me. The thinking that runs like this, as long as I get mine, as long as I get my free trip to heaven or whatever it is I think I want to get out of this, then the rest of you can just go on a cross without me. Just Leave me here on the grassy slopes of Bashan and send me a postcard when you get yours. But beloved, this isn't the Spirit of God. Let it never become the Spirit of the church. We, though many, though many, are one body. 
No one's ever expressed the spirit of Christ in the church better than the apostle, who also happened to be the prisoner at the time, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, to the Philippians. Having discussed the sufferings and inconveniences, inconveniences of Christianity in chapter 1 of his letter to them, he begins chapter 2 with those words that I mentioned before. I want to put them before you again. Paul writes by the Spirit, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Possessed as he was of a truly human nature, a true human nature, Jesus' own personal interests were very important to him. They were. He valued his life. He valued his health. He valued his peace of mind. He valued his comfort. And yet, he laid them all aside for the interests of the many, didn't he? He laid them all aside for the interests of the church purchased with his blood, that we, his brothers, might now find rest in our inheritance. When in Luke chapter 10, the 70 returned from their preaching mission with joy, Jesus said something very interesting. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Surely the church, armed with the whole armor of God, led by him who sits on the white horse, him whose name is the word of God, surely we do well to move out against such a fleeing foe, smartly, confidently, and together, until we all come into the fullness of our possession in Christ. We've seen what the Lord our God has done for us, first at Jahaz, then at Edrei, finally at Calvary. So mindful of his promise to Abraham, he still fights for us. He fights our battles. He wins our battles. If we share in his victory, let us also share one another's burdens in the fight and so fulfill the law of Christ. Amen.